I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. All right, guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. G'day, guys. And we're very lucky to have with us Rex Nindorf, and Rex is the director and owner of the Alice Springs Reptile Centre. G'day, Rex. Adrian and Steve, thanks for coming in. Mate, thank you for a private behind-the-scenes tour of this awesome facility. That's uh, perfectly fine. I'll just put the taipan away and we should be laughing and we'll get it's, on with it. It's fine in my lap. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, how did you start off getting into reptiles? I'm probably like most people. I uh, started with reptiles, but mine was maybe a little bit different. So um, when I was really young, uh, my, my grandma used to take me out fishing and also looking for mushrooms. So we were out in the bush all the time. So I had a sort of passion for anything in the wild. In the family, there was also a, a dump. So we sort of owned a dump. So there's this dump there just full of pieces of tin lying around. And when you're a little kid, what do you do? You pick up tin. Um, so when I was a little kid, I actually got into lizards. And my first lizard was a little pet sleepy lizard or a shingleback or whatever name that people want to use. And uh, Buck Rogers used to be on back then so his name was Tweaky so out of Buck Rogers and that was my first pet and I had him for a long time and um, I actually didn't get into snakes till I was about 18 so everything was lizards when I was young. And how did you go from being a kid that was into catching wild lizards to owning your very own reptile centre? It's probably a long road and it's hard not many people are able to do it and uh, if you do do it and you stick and we've been going for 20 years now which is a really long time uh, any business probably around the world or definitely in Australia most businesses go bust after about three years so if you can continue something for longer than that you're probably doing okay so I did conservation and park management when I was at university Uh, I was actually going to become a ranger this was in South Australia in South Australia at the time when I graduated South Australia basically almost the entire state pretty well went into liquidation uh so the the uh, savings bank and everything went broke um so i got a letter saying that you know we can't offer you a job as a ranger even though i'd just gone through the process and got onto the list you know there's about 10 people on the list and i was probably seven on the list and worked my way up a little bit when i got the letter to saying okay you we can't offer you a job you know the the government's broke go look for another job so I actually registered to go on the dole, and I think it's about the only time I've been on the dole in my entire life. So I was on the dole for a very short time, and an advert came up to work at Bowman Park in South Australia. So I applied. There was about 40-odd people went for it. I think it was 42, and I was lucky enough to get the position. And my interest was really into reptiles, so that sparked it all. So I was lucky enough to get that position. I worked there for about three years. Uh, Ted Mertens was my original boss um, and I had Stuart as my immediate boss with Jenny. Uh, We had a great little group and we had some pretty cool animals and then on my weekends I used to go visit Peter Merchant down at Venom Supplies and learn a little bit more and then uh, we left Bowman Park. I was there for about three years, left there and there was a coach group that used to come up from from Adelaide. They'd go through Bowman Park in the mid-north of South Australia. They'd continue up to a place in the middle of nowhere called Glendambo and uh, Craig, the guy that ran it, came and saw me and says, well, why don't you come work for me? And you can um, run a reptile show at Glendambo. So I said, fair enough. So uh, I went around and bought a heap of animals and moved up to, to Glendambo. So uh, I moved there, I think 94 I got there, so I was there from 94 to 97. And I did uh, reptile shows there. 
but I also had to do bar work because there's not enough work over summer to continue on. Uh, and that time, you know, back then the tourism was pretty poorly in South Australia and all the coach drivers said, well, you should just go to Alice Springs. And that's how I ended up in Alice Springs. There'd been no local market in Glendanbay, would there? It'd only be the tourists coming through. Is that population? Population, yeah, nothing, is it? 20 to 30 people, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, there's, uh, there's uh, uh, probably 20 people. Uh, I think there's about... Um, I think they say there's about 22 million flies surrounded by sheep country, so there's a lot of sheep, and that's about it. So I jumped in the Hilux, went for a drive, I think it was about Christmas time, and uh, I went to uh, The Rock, I went to Kings Canyon and Alice Springs, and I chose to settle in Alice Springs, so I moved up here and started up a, a nighttime show doing uh, shows for people at night time with reptiles and then out of that came Alice Springs Reptile Centre a couple of years later. So when you moved up here, I find it quite fascinating that you were, we're going to try not to give away your age now, but people will work it out, you were 31 years old when you took this place over. Mm. That's brave. Yeah, I, I was lucky. So when I moved up to Alice, I basically did most of my shows within a, one particular resort and they had like three resorts and so I'd go between those three. And so the clientele was sourced from there for me. And there was a, a bloke up here, Greg Fife, who ran the Arid Australia Reptile Display, which is out part of the camel farm. So I got to know Greg pretty well and we got to know each other really well because my work didn't interfere with him, his work didn't interfere with mine. He was sourcing a different clientele to what I was. You know, we both had the same sort of passion with reptiles and I could learn a lot from Greg because he knows a hell of a lot. So it was great to hang around and sponge off him as much as I possibly could. So uh, I got to know him really well. And uh, then the Desert Park, which is the big government-owned park here in town, they uh, started up in, I think, in 96. I moved up here in 97. And Greg approached me, uh, you know, probably about late 98, middle of 98, and said, look, I've, I'm thinking of divesting out of my place and going to work for the desert park because they were basically headhunting him to go work there so we sat down and we formulated a plan where I would buy him out and basically take his most of his animals or most of his stock and his enclosures and I approached him and I sat down with him and I said look if you were to do this again how would you do it because it's always good to get words of advice from someone who's done it before I think and he said well if if I was to have a reptile centre in town I'd probably because people come to the camel farm for camels and there just happened to be a reptile centre there as well. He said, I would, if I was to do it again, I'd either put it on the highway, so, you know, in everyone's face, or I would put it right in the CBD. So I then went, drove around for ages, months, looking around for the correct place. And in Alice Springs itself, on the edge of the CBD, is the Royal Flying Doctor Service Visitor Centre. And at that stage, there was probably close to about 100,000 people going through it. And there was a little house directly across, uh, just an old ramshackle house directly across the uh, road. And um, it was on a corner, it was a big block. And almost directly across the road, like 30 metres away, there'd be 100,000 tourists coming out of that place every year looking across the road. So I thought, what better place? So I, I went around, I found out who owned the place and they were leasing it out on a weekly basis. And I approached them, I said, look, I'm happy to take a three year lease. So they agreed to that. So I actually took the lease out in August 99. Uh, so I bought Greg out of his stuff in March 99, took the lease out in August 99, and then we opened up as Alice Springs Reptile Centre in January 2000. Oh, that's quick. It was a big turnaround because I don't think I've probably ever worked so hard in my life because I would be doing shows every night and then I'd be back here on the building site every day. So 
that was probably the most I've ever worked. But I think what happens with people in business is, um, and this is to my reasoning why people go bust after three years, is they work so hard to get their business up and running. And you can see the business going like this. So you can see it going better year after year. And so after three years, they sit down and they think, oh, my job's done and the business will just happily go along. But I don't think that happens. So I've continuously worked for now. 20 odd years so I'm over 50 now so I'm actually 51 and um, plus I've got two kids here which were you know I met the missus here and had the two kids here and um, uh, they've been with us all this afternoon and I think that you've got to work in your business and be part of your business almost every day and that way you can keep your finger on the pulse or the heartbeat and, and know what's going on and if you lose that I think that's where people become unstuck. That's amazing to think like 100,000 people potentially visiting Alice Springs. I mean, we're, we're in the dead centre of Australia, really. Mm. That's great tourism. It is. It's very good tourism. But just remember when we started up here, it was January 2000. And that year we had the Olympics. And so Australia was pretty well in everyone's forefront of everyone's brain because Tourism was going back gangbusters. Um, and when I started up here, we had uh, Qantas serving from every state and every capital city. So it was ANSET. There was plenty of insurance companies. There was no 9-11 happened at that stage. So all these things were, everything was flourishing. So we took off really well and did really well. Uh, and then shortly afterwards, you know, ANSET went out. So that suddenly cut half the amount of planes coming to Alice Springs. So ANSET just went like that. So you lost ANSET. HIH was a huge big insurer collapsed. And we were lucky that I think the year that they collapsed, we were paying about, I think, two or $3,000 per year for our insurance. The following year, we paid 11000 And we were lucky enough to have the money in the bank to pay it. And a lot of people went broke because they couldn't pay their insurance for the next year. So we were very lucky we were able to continue. Otherwise, we would have fallen off the wayside as well. So we've had high times at the start. Then we went through some troubled times. Then we're doing well again. Then, of course, the GFC came in again. And now we've gone back up again. And this year has probably been our best year. Probably there's a couple of reasons why. Uh, First of all, um, probably worldwide, everyone know that the uh, Uluru climb is about to close so the last climber will be let up at 3:59 this friday and so shortly after that parks wildlife rangers will probably go up and clear everyone out of the park and make sure everyone's off and that's the end of the climb and then on the sunday there's a big closure celebration going on and a big ceremony going on on the sunday and in anger have said everyone's had time to climb and then now closing the climb and we're going back to to the park and and our cultural ways so a lot of people have travelled up, excessively travelled up this year to do that climb before it closes. And the second thing that's a big factor is uh, Lake Air filled up this year. So lots of people came up for Lake Air and here because if you come to this region, people generally have to plan to come this far. So if you live in, in somewhere in Sydney and you just want to do a couple of days up the road, that's easy. But to get to the middle of Australia takes a fair bit of planning. So if you've got a couple of major events going on, so Uluru, you've got uh, Lake Air, there's two major events, people are probably going to do that and travel. So this year, lots more people travelled than normal. So it's been a huge year for us this year, and it's still continuing. And then the other thing that's helped is stable fuel prices over a while so there's been quite stable fuel prices so people can budget and expect to know what they're going to be spending rather than fuel being you know two dollars whatever a litre it's quite stable it has been stable for probably the last um, 18 months or so 
Uh, there's also cheap camper trailers and things coming in from China. So people can get a camper trailer really cheap rather than very expensive ones. So there's been a lot of things and also the dollar's been low. So when the dollar's low, Australians travel in Australia. So when the dollar's high, you know, if we're parity with the American dollar, then everyone's going overseas. So all those things factored together have given this, especially this area here in central Australia, a massive boost this year. So it's been a big, big tourism year and it's definitely showing. But, uh, you know, we've come through it. We've almost finished the season off as far as tourism season. But now is, of course, snake season or reptile season. So with that in mind, do you have to budget for the future for this reptile park? Because you, you, you're doing a lot of building and things. There's a lot going on. You're replenishing things. So... Yeah, how does that work? Yeah, it, it, it's one of the hardest things to do the budget. You've got staff, you've got animals, which is very important because you've got to be able to feed them and look after them. And, and if all your tourism predominantly comes in from, say, Easter through to about um, October, that still leaves you a big chunk of the year to, to get through. I mean, you still get tourism in the off-season, but not as much as what you get in the busy season. So you might look as though you're making a lot, but you've then got to leverage that out over the next four to five months. So you're right, the, the budgeting is, is very important. So we've diversified a bit, and we had to. It's like, you know, if people on the land, they diversify and they might start up a and b on their station or do some other tourism form of station like um, maybe Curtin Springs has done, which is the station just outside of Illaroo. And they've done some wonderful things to diversify with paper making and all sorts of things. And so diverse, diversification is a pretty key to keeping your business running. So if something dips down a little bit, other things should be able to prop it up. So we do the snake catching in town uh, and that's uh, done under government contract, which is probably unique Australia-wide to Northern Territory. Uh, so we do that. We also do training. So we train companies to catch and remove snakes. Uh, we do a lot of film work. Uh, we've just finished a major one just recently because most of the film work we do is generally over the warmer months because that's when the animals are active and, and you can get everything done. And then... Um, uh, we do a little bit of breeding and sales as well. So all those things we do over summer. So that gives us a little bit of extra income over over the summer months, which helps top it up and give us a year round. Probably it it sort of helps year round. It, it helps you level that budget out a bit. So rather than taking a big dive off a dive board, it's sort of a more of a shallow one and gives you a little bit of helping hand over the summer months. But so it is hard. So you can't just rely on the visitors to this facility? Probably not for our place, especially because when you work with animals especially, you've got to have staff year-round. It's not like you can just taper off your staff because the animals have to be cared for and looked after and fed and everything else. So it's a little bit different. So, But those other things we do help maintain and run my business the year-round. And that's a benefit for everyone in town because we're on call to everyone. So as part of the contract, uh, and we go above what's in the contract, but part of the contract, we're on call 24-7 to the hospital, to any remote hospitals. So we've been rung up by um, people in the middle of the pit lands, um, all sorts of places with, um, with uh, phone calls. Uh, asking about someone who's just been bitten by this or that. We're on call to all the vets. There's now three vets in town, so we're on call to every single vet. Um, and we've had a couple of vet attendances recently, one for a cat, uh, one for dogs. So we're on call 24-7 for all those sort of things as well. So the town actually gets a pretty good deal out of, out of us being here as well. What kind of species do you work with when you go on calls? And has any of the species over the years surprised you what you've found? By far and away, the most common animal that we catch in Alice Springs is a Western brown snake, which is 
obviously now Manganai here in this region here that's been split up into three they account for probably two-thirds of all snakes off callouts <laughs> so it's a it's a lot so we're talking hundreds and hundreds per per year uh, we do get uh, the odd eastern brown here as well not many although we did pick up one the other day the second most common snake in town is um, the whip snake which used to be probably the yellow faced whip snake which is now um, probably the reticulated whip snake in this area here uh, so they're very very common as well pseudocida or curl snakes are, are extremely uh, common here as well and if we get we get lots of suitors and lots of uh, whips at the start of the season the end of the season because whips are small you know they can warm their bodies up quick and things like that and suitors probably can hack those colder temperatures uh, and then we also get a lot of stimson's pythons and obviously with stimmies you know we try and get people to leave them on their site and things like that so uh, it's always better to leave your your stimmies and those sort of things and even with whips i mean you walk outside and someone's got a rock garden, a <laughs> rock ledge, and there's a little whippy just running around catching skinks. I mean, that's actually better entertainment than your TV. You might <laughs> as well just leave it there and, and not remove it. It's not going to, really, it's not going to do any harm to you. And it's great fun sitting out and having a beer and watching it. You might as well just watch it. So, uh, and if we do catch one, we'll probably just, you know, and have to remove it. It probably goes over the fence maybe. But, um, but you know, those sort of things are probably better left on site there's lots of those um, surprising things we get um, maybe not so surprising as such but things like bandy bandies pop over in there and bandy bandies are an awesome animal so we do get bandy bandies uh, you'll get little spotted snakes sometimes they're not as common as the curl but they're around uh, ring brown snakes and you get some really pretty ones of those especially the juveniles they're a stunning brown snake they favorite they're beautiful and uh, then you get the banded westerns and they're, yep. they're pretty stunning. <laughs> they're so when we get a banded western, it's always pretty special when you get a banded western. So you do get things that pop up that are a little bit unusual. And then you get the other things in town, things like thorny devils. And we get thorny devils off call-outs fairly commonly. And we talk to parks all the times and we, we get parks to put out. Uh, they go on radio and do things and saying, look, if you do see a thorny devil out in the bush and it's doing this little jerky movement across the road, just leave it. It's not actually injured, just... You know, leave it out there, don't bring it in. Because the thorny devil, if it's in Alice Springs, it's been brought into Alice Springs. It's not here, it doesn't live here. So you do get those brought in occasionally. So, um, so thorny devils are introduced into Alice Springs? Oh, there's no, basically none in Alice Springs itself. Oh, okay. um, but if you go 25, 30 k's out of Alice Springs, yes. Yeah, okay. But not actually in Alice Springs Township yeah. itself, no. So if people come to the park here, that they can expect to see reptiles from Central Australia? Mostly what we have is from Central Australia. We've got two animals that actually don't exist in Northern Territory, which is um, sleeper lizards or shinglebacks and uh, the collet snake. Yeah, so we've got two animals that aren't from Northern Territory, but I display those. And my first pet was a sleeper lizard, so I've got a soft spot sleepies, and they do come pretty close anyway to the border. And then, of course, collets, um, you know, if you, if you project over to the Barclay region, it's pretty similar habitat. So, and collets are a pretty nice looking animal, so I put them on. And I've got a red belly out the back as well. He's not on display, but everyone's going to have a red belly. Again, you know. a beautiful snake. If you put it on display, why not? Yeah. <laughs> you've, <laughs> got to have a, you've got yeah. to have a red belly. They're, yeah. they're just awesome. So, stuff from the top end, things like the frillies, and of course, uh, Terry the crockies out the back. And I had, we've got a, the conference going on at the moment. And I had to duck out at the conference and, and come here at lunchtime. I had a few things on. One of the things I came in this morning and Terry had done a big crap. Um, so I had to get that out just to make it look a bit clean. And when you get it out, you know, it sends up a lot of muck. So you've got to give it time, a couple of hours to settle. And you guys were coming in at the end of the day. So 
So I came here at lunchtime, pulled it out, and I had a couple of tourists there watching. And, um, you know, the croc lifted up, turned around. So I got him to sit and move and all that sort of stuff. And people are talking amongst themselves. And the girl turns around to me and goes, how does he do that? And I said, well, you know, he is trained. <laughs> and they get quite horrified that crocodiles actually can be trained and conditioned. And, and uh, yeah, so we've had him for 17 years. It took us about three years to do it. So he's not so much as trained, more conditioned, but, um, yeah, it's surprising what he can do. He's just like an average dog. And, in fact, he's probably better than a dog. Wow. Uh, people are pretty horrified when he's up the back of the enclosure and I can call him by name and he'll come in immediately. So people get pretty horrified about that. That's how smart crocodiles are. Crocodiles are very good at killing you. Mm. So they're a very smart animal. And the problem with crocodiles is crocodiles are both smart and patient Humans are either smart or patient. Crocodiles are smart and patient. They watch and they wait, and they're very, very good at killing things. So crocodiles are an enormously dangerous animal, and you've got to respect crocodiles. So um, people might think that, you know, when I go in there, I'm a bit flippant sometimes with him, but I'm not. I'm watching him all the time. So if the crocodile was there right now, and that's why he's in clear water, and I was looking at you right now, I'm pretty well not looking at you because I'm looking at that crocodile. You don't take your eyes off the crocodile. You don't turn around. So I had a tour group in a couple of days ago. We did the crocodile. Right behind the crocodile was the Mertens goannas. One of the Mertens had kindly stood up. So I was in a great pose. And normally they can't go anywhere because we just blue tack them there anyway. So they're stuck there for a while. So uh, they turned around. They, they looked at the Mertens. As soon as they looked at the Mertens, I turned around. Terry was under the water. As soon as they turned their back to him, he immediately put his head above the water. Mm. So I just said, folks, you might want to turn around and see what's happened. And he'd put his head above the water, and then he put his head above the water, went straight back under the water, and then came straight up. So they're watching it all the time. You can't afford to turn your back. And they're very dangerous. And the best one was um, a couple of days ago, and we get the footage because we've got cameras surrounding everywhere. So we had a camera watches him 24-7. People always say there's a bit of conjecture about how good a crocodile's eyesight is underwater. In murky water, obviously, we can't see underwater, neither can they. Our water is clear. Uh, he's in about three feet of water at full depth. And there's a reason for that, because that limits how much tail thrust he can get, because I've only got a very small area to move. So the pond was made to keep me alive. We've got video footage of him getting a crow. The crow was flying in midair about a metre above the water, and he took it out from under the water. That's how good their eyesight is underwater. So, and he's taken out several birds, and that's all on video. So, um, so for anyone who says that their eyesight's not that good underwater in clear water, their eyesight underwater is exceptional because you've got to take in consideration that he's under the water. So you've got to have refraction, <laughs> you know, all that. So you've got to take in a lot in consideration. Yeah. And he grabbed a crow at full flight, coming a metre over the water, just straight up and grabbed it in midair. It's hundreds of millions of years of evolution for you. What, crows? <laughs> <laughs> I hope he never ever does it again because um, the water was full of oil so we had to drain the entire oh, pond. Yeah. Yeah, I hope he never grabs one again. But he grabs everything. So he grabs crows, grabs uh, our ringneck parrots, pigeons. He grabs whatever else comes. So he opportunistic feeds. So uh, he's done pretty well. But like when you see that sort of stuff, you have a very healthy respect for them of what they can do. and But their eyesight underwater is exceptional. So the, only a couple of days ago, I was doing a, another show for an American group, 
which in America they have mainly alligators. So you've got to talk American to them about alligators. So you, you turn it into feet and pounds and go from there and explain about alligators being little plush toys compared to crocodiles, which are crocodiles and don't ever confuse the two. All the people are lined up, the crocodile's there. I'd been mucking around with him for a few minutes. He had his head under the water and he was under the water by about three or four inches looking in the away direction. I was in the middle of the show. A bloke came in with his um, family. So it was the bloke, the missus, two little kids. The little kid was like a two-year-old. He had it under his arm, so he came with a little girl under his arm. He's a fairly tall fella, so he would have been maybe 6'3", six, 6'4". Six, I was watching the crocodile, and um, so I looked over the crocodile. I looked back at the bloke. He stood almost directly behind me, about maybe two metres behind me. He had his little child under his arm. He got the child, put the child on top of his neck so the child's now sitting on his neck above his head and as soon as that happened you could see the crocodile's eyeball move under the water so I, I said to the folks I said probably give it five or ten seconds he's going to put his head above the water he'll put his head below the water he's going to beeline straight for that kid and I turned around and said see that kid I said that kid's food I said all you are is a nuisance to that crocodile's territory that kid's food and I said, you watch this. And three seconds later, put his head above water, put his head above water for maybe 20, 25 seconds, put his head below water, straight over. So that crocodile below the water can tell that there's a kid on that guy's shoulders. That's how good their eyesight is. That's terrifying. Did he get the kid? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and I downloaded that footage the other day, so that's off the security camera just sitting there. So, um, But that's how good Crocodile's eyesight is underwater in clear water. So, and I could see his eyeball move immediately as soon as I was watching the crocodile because I knew it was going to happen because I've seen it that many times. And as soon as that kid went above that guy's head, that crocodile can differentiate the adult to the kid and the kid's food. Adult is nothing to the crocodile. It's just a nuisance to its territory. As soon as that kid was placed on top of that guy's head, Within a few seconds, the crocodile had his head above water. And then 30 seconds later, back under the water, and then thump, beeline straight over for it. It's amazing when you spend the time to actually study what they're doing and their mannerisms and things, and then what you can see. I think yeah. we're lucky like that. It's like um, um, you, you get researchers go out in the field, and they'll be out with animals day after day after day, and if they've got plenty of money or doing a PhD or something, you know, they can afford to spend a bit of time out there, and they'll get to know those animals really well, which is great because then they can come back to people like us and say, you know, this is how the wild animal reacts and interacts and things like that, so we can then use that to our best knowledge and capability, which we should be doing as keepers. You know, if we can get a better method of keeping, we should be doing it. Here, when you're a keeper and you're with animals for a long time, so there's a speckled brown snake right behind us. I purchased her off Fifey, so she's been here for over 20 years because I got her in March 99. So that little girl there, I bought her off Fifey in March 99. So she's been here for a long, long time. Mm. So I've got a lot of very ancient animals. We're, <laughs> actually, um, we're actually surrounded by some pretty dead... We was at the Australian Reptile Park and we were in probably the most dangerous room in the world. But equally, like you look around here and we've got taipans, brown snakes, <laughs> mulgas. Yeah, yeah. And so you've got a mulga there, you've got an eastern brown there, you've got a coastal taipan there, you've got an inland taipan there, you've got western browns there, you've got a death adder there, desert death adder and a collet snake and a, and a speckled brown, so all in one room. But yeah, some of these animals have been here for a while. So with Terry, he's been here 17 years. 
I'm with him almost every day I'm here. So it's not very often he doesn't get to see me. So we spend a lot of time with them, a lot of time watching them. So the animals that I used to work a lot with, I used to have two red belly black snakes when I was down at Glendambo, and uh, they were both males. But they would regularly go swimming in the pool out the back and they'd go into the water. They'd sit there for 20, 30 minutes at a time, come up, pop down, they'd just sit there. And I used to freehandle them, but I don't really freehandle much anymore. Back then I used to do it a lot. So... I had those two and knew those two animals pretty well. I also had a collet snake who died a couple of years ago and she was well over 20 as well. And uh, I used to freehand her all the time and she was a beautiful animal. So there's three snakes I used to be really close with. That's excluding our big snakes we use all the time. So the, the animals that I spend a lot of time with were the ones we do with filming. So I originally had Bub. Bub passed away um, about five years ago now. He was about probably 32 years old when he passed away, so he was our original big parenti. And then Pete, we used Pete, and unfortunately Pete passed away this year. Uh, he was over 20 years old as well. And those two, I had to know the animals inside out because when we do films, and some of these film crews are coming from, you know, they're coming from a long way away, so, and they're probably the best film crews in the world. So when you're dealing with the Attenboroughs and those sort of things, you've got to be on your ball. And they won't come and film with you if they're not going to get what they want. So you've got to be really good and you've got to know what you're doing. So some of the best work that you'll see on TV has been done with our animals. And it's not so much me, it's the animal. But if you know your animal, you can then work with them. And that's what it is. It's knowing the animal, watching the animal, knowing how the animal will react to certain things. Like you can tell them how they're going to react to that camera or, or you, where you're standing, all sorts of different things is how they're going to react. So if you can do that, then you'll get the footage you want. So especially with working with highly venomous snakes. So if you've got a nervous camera operator who's on the ground, you know, wearing a T-shirt or whatever, there's an inland taipan there, or there's a western brown snake there, they get the footage and all of a sudden the taipan of the western brown goes straight past them and you tell them just to, if that happens, you just stay still. You know, they're just going to go and find somewhere to hide. They'll get the footage. But if the animal starts coming towards them and they panic and they move, then it's all gone. So the camera operator has to have confidence in you and you've got to display that confidence by having confidence in the animal in the first place. That's a brave cameraman. (laughs) Yes, I've seen some... There's not many of those, I'm sure, in the world. (laughs) I've seen some brave cameramen, but you have to do it because if you react, the animal will react to you. That's not what you want. So if you're doing life documentaries and nature documentaries it's wild behavior not behavior displayed towards the human who's filming so there's a big difference you've got to have the wild behavior and it's hard to get wild behavior but if the camera knows what they're doing or if they believe in you that what you've just told them is going to work then they'll get that and so i think we've only ever had one film where we failed to get something and that was a long time ago and we were doing a a parenti feeding sequence and that was with a with a um a snake and you know we got him coming to the burrow scratching doing everything else and we put a dead snake in there um so we got everything except the final sequence i think he grabbed the snake and then let go so he didn't actually swallow it so we turned that into i think that it, the snake got away and i think that's about the only one and we've done that probably hundreds of times <laughs> so, and we've only ever failed once so realistically they come to us because we can pretty well guarantee 99.99% that they're going to get what sequence they want and if you're going to come all the way from USA Canada in the case of BBC or any of those from England or Pan or wherever they're coming from 
they want to guarantee that if they're going to send a squad over here and a, and a big film crew and a big budget crew at that and these cameras they're working with are, are big dollar cameras that they're going to go away with the footage they they need and require because you have to have you've got to fill those segments to make up that film and we might film for four days and they're going to pull maybe what 30 seconds of footage maybe a minute for lucky out of those four days depending on what it is so they're coming a long way and putting in a lot of resources and a lot of time just to get that one or two sequences so when you're filming you know it's pretty tense i've been on four or five which have been extremely tense filming because they'll have key sequences that they must get and we've had several where we've got right to the last day or the last hour and we still haven't got that key sequence and we've got it so we just did a major one which we just finished and i can't talk about it i can talk about it but i just can't talk about the specifics of it and we had three sequences to get in two hours and the producer was off doing something else and she was starting to get a little bit anxious and she got back and we said yeah well you know i think we told her we got one of the sequences so you know it was sort of a half a rain dance coming on and then of course we couldn't hold back for <laughs> for too much and um we said no we got it all and we showed her the rushes and we got all three sequences in two hours and we've done that several times sometimes it's just you've got to give the animal time to settle in and relax and and sometimes it's just the time of day and it just happened to be the end of the day and sometimes the end of the day is a great time to film so you can push and push all you like for the middle of the day you get to the end of the day and the sun's going down especially on a hot day you don't ever want to be filming in the heat of the day because the sun the light is just too harsh it's really harsh it just doesn't look good so even with the camera technology got now just harsh sun is just just not good but when you've got that fading sunlight and that coming down it's just beautiful light and that's what we had the other day we had that beautiful light we had three se- sequences to get and we just did bang 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 got all three it's a beautiful backdrop here isn't it yep we're lucky I mean, you can go just out of town and you can have ranges, uh, salt lakes, you can have red sand, all sorts of different habitat. There's all these systems like really close by and that also makes it easy for someone to come here and film because we can get a lot of stuff done with different habitats. So it looks like you're actually gone a long way and yet you've only gone really within 150 kilometres and you can get all these different habitats. About the only thing that we struggle with here is when... We get crews that come on and they want to film uh, inland taipans, which of course inland taipans are specific. You know, you really should be on black soil and, you know, cracks and those sort of things. So we as you go to a place close to town where we can mimic a little bit of that, but we've only got a little bit of stuff to mimic with. So all those shots are tight shots because you can't do a long shot because <laughs> it just doesn't look like it. So, But everything else that we film is found in this area here and it looks stunning if you come here especially after a little bit of rain as soon as you have rain it turns everything green and the reason why it turns things green is just wash the dust off everything so everything just suddenly goes green Mm -hmm. um but you've got the i don't know whether it's to do with our makeup or the way our eyes work or what it is you've got the red the green and the blue and it just looks sensational Mm. you know you just can't beat it it really does look absolutely sensational with those red of the sand or red of the rocks the green of the of the vegetation and that beautiful blue sky behind it it just makes everything pop and it looks stunning 
Is that true that that's just the rain's washing the dust off the vegetation and the rocks and that's why it's more visually appealing? Or are you joking? Because <laughs> <laughs> if you're joking, I'll take that out. <laughs> what I said. Yeah. No, um, it's, it's half and half. Um, realistically, if you get... The dust does build up. It builds up a lot, actually, and um, you only have to stand something outside for a while. That red dust is so fine. It's really fine. Yeah, like if you've got locks on your, on your um, doors and things like that, that red dust is so fine, you know, because you get your dust storms, it just gets into the locks and lead away your locks and all those sort of things. That, that red dust gets everywhere. It really gets everywhere. It'll permeate into almost everything because it's a very, very fine particulate. And, of course, if you were here only a couple of weeks ago because we just had half an inch of rain a little while back, you know, everything, you looked at the ranges and they were brown and whatever else, and then the rain comes and the next day it actually looks greenish and half that is because the dust is just washed off so it actually does give you almost a meaty effect That's you know there is a, a grain of truth in it yeah. might be four grains of truth but it's it's there <laughs> and but then again of course in a desert as soon as you get rain things will just pop you mm. know so it doesn't take long for that but that's what desert plants and that do you know they take it immediately they have to because it's a desert it's so yep yeah, and it, and it, it does help but yeah there there is a an effect there of washing a bit of dust off now you must see a lot of people come through from overseas we do yeah like, yep terry loves them <laughs> <laughs> are people just shocked by the vastness and of the outback do you get a lot of feedback about people's experiences when they come here i think um it it's been hard because um this this year uh, especially there's been some tourists coming from overseas and in recent years we've had several tourists die it's quite for us it's it's quite surreal because you'll see them depart like if you fly in with them so let's say if i jump on a plane in sydney and i get off in alice springs i'm coming back home you know so i get off the plane i come back home but you've got a couple hundred tourists there that are departing coming into where i live and you'll see them walk off the plane with this little bottle of water this big you know, it's what is it, 250 mil bottle of water. I might see that same tourist come into my place later that day or tomorrow, and I said, oh, did you just fly in from Sydney? They think I'm a magician. You know, I just saw him on the plane. And do you know what? They're still carrying a little bit of water this big. And they'll fill that up in a little bottle this big. And then they might go for a bushwalk and they take a little bottle this big. It, it's it's crazy, you know, and there's been a big push by Parks and Wildlife about beat the heat. So we've got signs up for it here. The signs have gone to all the all the um, tourism places in town and everywhere about beat the heat because we've had several deaths recently from people just from the heat, and it's it's it shouldn't be happening because um, people will literally go out for a drive or for a walk somewhere, and and if you get heat stroke and get disorientated, it can happen very quickly, and all of a sudden you're walking in circles rather than going back to where your car was. And it's very sad and it shouldn't be happening. So Parks has had a big push to, to, you know, with tourism people and everything, to get that out there that, you know, you are in Central Australia, it is hot. And if you've just come from England or somewhere and you've just arrived here, that's a big gradient difference. <laughs> and and um, it's, it, like you said, it's a vast place. And I think sometimes that vastness can trick you. It's almost like, you know, when you see a mirage out in the distance, you know, it can be a bit of trickery. <laughs> so... We, we love tourists coming here um, and we love showing off our country but I think there is a, an element there that you've really got to take personal safety really strongly because it is a harsh place that we live in, very, very harsh.
Does that message tie into the educational shows that you guys run here at the centre? When people come here, we display reptiles, and um, reptiles dominate deserts, and there's probably a reason why, because they've learnt to live in areas which are not so much devoid of water, but, you know, water is very hard to come by. They've learnt to live within the parameters that come from living in a desert, whereas what a human does is a human tries to overcome those parameters whether by having a water bottle or taking a four-wheel drive or having air conditioning so we do everything we can to try and beat it whereas the animals don't do that they don't try to beat the desert they've just learned to live within the desert environment whereas humans are different we try to beat the crap out of everything and stamp it down they don't they've learnt over millennia to live with it so you know reptiles hardly waste any water you know they they don't sweat when they go to the toilet they urine solid so they hardly lose any water out of their body. You know, fair enough, if you don't sweat, you can't be out in the middle of the hot sun on a hot day because you'll boil. So, you know, on a hot day, they'll come out early in the morning, late in the afternoon or at night time. So they've learnt to live within the desert environment, whereas we don't. We beat the crap out of the environment to make it suit us. They've done the complete opposite. So you, we get that message across when people come here that, you know, it is a desert environment and we can either try and you know, overstep or step all over that environment or we can live within that environment. Now, did I hear right, on Sunday night when you gave us a behind-the-scenes tour, you have cameras here that you can look back on that'll tell you which exhibits are the most popular? Yeah, so um, we run a system called Digifort. Um, a guy called Mick does it for us in town and he's pretty switched on. So he's probably a license for the Digifort system and then he has made up software that sits behind it that software is pretty ingenious so I can if I wanted to um, I can draw rings around all these enclosures on the software and then I can tell who went there how long they stayed for so I can then see what exhibit is most popular then I can go back and work out why it's most popular and you can build that into the into the software so the software can tell you that so you don't have to go back and trawl through it it can pop up and say well this has happened so cameras these days are there's passive cameras and there's active cameras. If you have a good active system and it's not so much an active system, there's, there's actually more active systems out there, but it's the software that drives that system and he's got proprietary software that he's made himself and it's pretty special. So you can use it to do a lot of things. And what um, exhibits are more popular? If you look at any exhibit anywhere and you could have the best animal on the planet, but if it's just sitting in the exhibit and doing nothing, people look at it and they might be really interested all of a sudden and they'll be looking at it. But if it just sits there and doesn't do anything, you've got a common animal over there jumping all around and doing whatever else. Or let's say there's a keeper right there and they suddenly open the enclosure. Foomp. So it can be funny when you say popular animal. We get a lot of Aboriginal, remote Aboriginal communities coming in here, whether it be with a school or something like that. And they've all heard of Terry and one of the first things they want to come so we do a talk for them they all get a talk um, but one of the first things I always want to see is Terry so because they've heard about it because kids that live out remote a lot of these are in poor socio-economic areas and so they'll never get the chance to go to Darwin probably um, never see a crocodile in the wild but they love crocodiles and so they can come here so he's really popular the other popular exhibitors of course thorny devils they're really popular and they walk around all the time and do things all the time so that's great um, the other popular exhibits are things like bearded dragons um, especially when we're doing a show so if we've got one of our show bearded dragons out and we've got a heap of people in there and there's a bearded dragon sitting over there 
they'll suddenly start talking to each other. Mm-hmm. So that makes that one popular. It all depends on the movement and what they're doing and whether there's a keeper close by and all those sort of things you can do. But, um, you know, for me to be away from my business, let's say I've been at the conference all day and come back, you know, I might be able to go online and, and just say, well, this one had the most hits. Mm. <laughs> you know, so uh, you can see, and then you can see why that was the most hits. And it could be because of there was a keeper there for most of the time or, you know, something was going on or, yeah, there's all those sort of things you can do. But if you can use tools to help you run your business, then why wouldn't you? So It's funny that someone said at the conference uh, today that to make it any exhibit more popular, just put a human in it. That's exactly that's, right. If there's so a funny, human cleaning yeah. from that's, the inside, yeah. people will that's, be looking yeah, at what, that. Something's happening, yep. what's happening. Yeah. If you go to an aquarium and you see a diver in that aquarium, that's Especially if there's watching. a sh- shark, yeah, yeah, you'll sit there and watch. Egging on the shark. <laughs> it, it, you do. and it, I mean, when we, do, when we do snake shows, and you know, if, if we've got a venomous snake out, and it's like anyone who does venomous snake shows, if you've got a venomous snake out, the people go there because it's like going to watch a heap of car racing. Mm. You know, they just want to see the crash. <laughs> so, it's so know, true. It's they're just, so they're bad, just hoping like so mad true. that there's going to be a bite. So, so um, but yeah, the, the other thing we haven't talked about is how we've done things to reduce our outgoings. And, and I think that's a big thing because, and there was issues today brought up about climate change. Whether you're a believer or a denier or whether you just sit on the fence about it, I mean, you've got the Extinction Rebellion and all sorts of things going on at the moment, but to me it seems simple that um, why don't you just go and do things? And we've done lots of stuff here to help reduce it, and it's not only reducing our, say, carbon output and those sort of things and the imprint on that, uh, but it's also giving us huge energy efficiencies, which means it keeps my bottom line better. So... If I had 30,000 people come through my place and I do all these energy efficiency measures, they might be the equivalent of having, I could have 5,000 more people through my place to cover that, or you just do energy efficiency matters or um, mechanisms that mean that you only need the 30,000. So what we did is we reduced outgoings because if you can reduce your outgoings, you're saving a lot because you would have to have a lot of people in your business coming through to pay to get that because then you've got to pay tax on it, whatever else. So if you can just reduce your outgoings in the first place then you're miles in front. So we were lucky that Alice Springs was a solar city. We have 12 or currently more than that. We've got 12 kilowatts of solar panels on the roof. We've got two solar air conditions with a kilowatt each on those, which means you can run air conditioner all day with that power. We have shaded blinds. We have tinting on, a, on the outside windows. We have... Um, extra um, insulation put in, all those sort of things, painted the roof white, all those sort of things have reduced our outgoings. So, And then I've got an electric car, it's a PHEV, so it's a petrol electric hybrid, but I've got solar panels here, I've got solar panels at home, so I can basically fill up my car for free. So all these sort of things you can do, and all of a sudden, you've one is you've helped the environment, even if you don't really want to, you've still helped it. And secondly is you saved on a bucket load of outgoings. So for business owners, to me, it's a no-brainer. But we were lucky because we had the solar city set up here for a while, so most of those things we got done, and the government chipped in half price, which means my repayment period is is quicker. And that's the probably one of the only issues. Um, and the only issue these days, I think, is batteries. You know, once you get good batteries, decent batteries that can recharge well, um, that are smaller, faster, and hold those charges, and they come down in price, things will definitely change very rapidly. But People can do so much 
with just little things right now and you know they go out and they protest and they do whatever else why don't you just do these things just do simple little things already there's things you can just do so i don't know why people just don't go ahead and do them don't wait for the government to tell you to do it just go ahead and do it now um i gotta go back to your devils real quick (laughs) steve Irwin came and you offered him the opportunity to hold just about every one of your snakes, but he went straight through to the to the devils. He's, as you're sitting there, I'm looking right yeah. at the photograph right behind you <laughs> saying, nice herps, devils rule. Yeah. <laughs> They're a popular animal, aren't they? Uh, devils. They certainly are. So when Sir David Attenborough was here as well, he was taken back by thornies as well. And we just had our hatchings just then, so they were tiny, they were about that big. And he's got big hands, and he had this tiny little devil on his hand. So he was captivated by them. Steve was captivated by them. And Steve has seen lots of different reptiles, lots. You know, he was lucky that had the opportunity to travel the world and see a whole host of different things. Same as Sir David, he's seen a whole host of different animals. And they're still captivated by thornies. And I think that because they're such a unique little critter and and even probably the name helps, <laughs> you know, Molochoritis. <laughs> uh, so even the name helps because, you know, they sound as though they're this big fearsome thing. And when you look at them and, and the way they walk, I think, gives it away. They walk like a little wind-up toy. So you can't help look at them and just immediately fall in love with them when you see this thing walk like a little wind-up toy. And then you find out it just eats ants and... You know, it's got all these special adaptations to being in a desert and and they're, they're just a comical-looking little thing and um, I think that's why people love them. And plus, they're not that big. They're this big. They're tiny. Um, so all that together, and I especially think especially that walk, just the way they walk and they do that little rocking motion, It's it, it really endears them to people and they, they love them straight away. There's not too many places you can see one in captivity. Probably not. There's a few private people that have them, which obviously you can't see because they're in private places so um and there wouldn't be many public places you can see them so in alice springs we're lucky because we've got them and so it's the desert park so they display theirs at the desert park we display ours here so there's two places just in alice springs where you can see them but you can pretty well go anywhere in the world and you you can't see them so if you really want to see a devil come here either visit the Alice Springs Reptile Centre, visit the Desert Park. We get people who go to both parks all the time. Um, because oh, you have to visit both. They're both so different. You absolutely yep, have to. Yep, there's a different experience to both. Yeah, that's right. And um, so we get a lot of people actually visit both places because people say, aren't you a competitor? But you shouldn't be. I mean, when we go out and we market Alice Springs interstate as the tourism side of things, first of all, we market the Northern Territory first. Secondly, we market our region Thirdly, we might market Alice Springs and, and lastly, we market ourselves because no one is just going to come here for us. They've got to come here for the whole experience and you just get your share. So um, we don't see the Desert Park really as a competitor. They're more of someone we work with. We've got their brochures here, so we work well together with everyone and you have to in a small place. And I think people, if people do come here, they should realistically visit both places because they both offer different experiences and I think they're both fantastic experiences but Alice is a in Australia you can go a long way to see a place like Alice Springs it's it does get a bad rap by some people but every town has its ups and downs and its pluses and minuses but I've been here for 20 odd years 22 years had my kids here it's a fantastic place to grow up the kids have loved growing up here and people do come here and they come here for you know, they call through for a day and they end up being here 20 years later. 
that mm-hmm. happens. So it's one of those places which really grows on you. And I think it's a, a quite a wonderful place and it's an amazing region where we are and we're pretty lucky to be here. And if you look at areas where you can have pristine habitat just on your doorstep, this is a great place to be. We went out to Simpsons Gap last night, didn't we, Steve? Wow, what a, an just amazing place. 20 place. minutes away as well. Yep. Amazing. And we were there after dark in the sky. Mm. You, can, you can see the stars here. Mm. It, that's the other thing is the stars. Um, there's a place called Earth Sanctuary just down the road and, and they do have an observatory there and they get people out there. The stars here are wonderful and we get those comments a lot, especially if you go out swagging and you go to bed and you look straight up and you know the Milky Way's there and all the stars there. It's, it's absolutely amazing and it's mind-blowing. And most people just don't get to see that, especially if they come from a city. And if they come from somewhere in Asia, they're probably never going to see it unless they come here. So it is pretty well mind-blowing that um, they get to see the stars. And, and I think in some way, there, there is a reason why there's national parks and those sort of things, because humans have to be connected back to nature. I think the minute we start to lose all that, and that's why we're desperately trying to keep a lot of nature, is because humans come from nature we're we're part of nature we have to be part of nature and i think not only is nature looking that way and that way you know we feel it on the dirt and we look at it in the trees but i think the other part of nature which is equally important is is the sky if we couldn't see the sky you know i mean you hear people who get incarcerated and they can't see the sky and it just drives them batty you know if you can see the sky it's it's almost like a calming thing it's just it's like it's supposed to be there. Mm. You know, it's if you took that away, it'd be a real issue. So for people who live in a city that can't see beautiful stars all the time, and you come here and you see these stars, and it, it really is impressive. And I think, as a human, it's ingrained into us to see those stars. You only have to look at how many, how many movies they are, as in science fiction movies, and things come from space. You know, it's it's there and. It's always got to be there, and I think if you can't see stars, you know, you'd have a pretty poor existence. And without the light pollution here, which is the big thing, isn't it? It's just so clear. I've never seen anything like it. So clear. Mm. Yeah. If you only have to go out of town a little bit, and um, like we're saying, 20 k's out of town, yeah. you go to town a little bit, and there's no light pollution at all. Even in town, it's not so bad, but out further, and you see some weird stuff. We go out, out bush. I've got a little bit of a hobby. We go looking for gold. And so we get to go out bush a little bit and um, and you see some really strange stuff. Probably shouldn't say about UFOs, but you see plenty of stuff that's out there. And um, we are out not long ago and I was in the swag looking up in the sky. There's a, a star up there. But you know how they say stars twinkle? This one wasn't twinkling. It was turning on and off like a flashlight. Mm. And it did it for, I don't know, 30 minutes to an hour. So I had the phone with me, so I took some footage. They can't see much on it anyway. So we're having breakfast the next morning, and another bloke who happened to be camping out there with us, and the morning pipes up at breakfast, says, anyone see that star last night? So I'm glad someone else saw it, because mm. stars don't turn on and off and on and off and in different modes, like not just on, off, on, off, but staying on for a little while. It was like it was almost Morse code coming down from a star. There was someone at the top of the mountain stuck. Yeah. You were looking at <laughs> And I've never seen that before. I've never seen a star wow. like that before. And it was stationary. So Very it was cool. in, mm. in stationary. It wasn't moving at all. So, And I know there's geostationary sat- satellites, but I've never seen one blinking. This was blinking. It was flashing. It wasn't twinkling. It was a big difference. 
And then I saw it about a week later and I dragged the missus out so she could see it to make sure she saw it as well. And then I saw it about a week after that. So I've seen it three times now and that's it. You're very brave to talk about it. I mean, I've seen something too. I won't go into it now, but I admire you for talking about it. That connection with nature you talked about is one of the big reasons we do the show. And it's funny how you, you said the kids from country that may never see, you know, go up to Darwin to see a crocodile. I mean, essentially these kids are seeing these stars every day, mm. but they may never see the ocean. Yeah. When they come in, um, or any school group comes in, I'll ask them, you know, have they been to Darwin? Have they been to Kakadu? And there might be one or two hands go up, but invariably most hands don't. But crocodiles have a special place with kids because it's almost like they're the dinosaur. And dinosaurs, kids love dinosaurs, really do. And we're lucky we've got... Uh, have you been to Megafauna Central yet? No, we keep seeing we it around. that, yeah. Yeah, yeah you def- it's free entry. So you definitely got to go to Megafauna Central while you're here. And a- Adam Yates looks after that. And um, his daughter worked with us for a long time. And um, he's got an amazing place. He goes out to Alcuda about a month or so a year and in the cool times. And they dig up all the fossils. And that's where the Baru comes from, you know, the, the now extinct Australian crocodile. So, oh, but is that the terrestrial crocodile? Yeah, terrestrial and water, okay. uh, which ate flamingos. <laughs> yeah, but we used to have three species of flamingo, didn't we, once upon a time? Um, apparently 10 million years ago, where we're standing right now, this was all a wetland full of baru and full of flamingos. Australia was the home of flamingo. We have to go there. <laughs> it's an awesome, awesome place. So uh, you definitely got to go there. So uh, it's, and it's an amazing little place because our cooter it's hard to get out to and it's hot. So the government set up this place in town so people can go and see what's come from out there, but amazing little spot. And if you get to talk to Adam, he's an absolute wealth of knowledge. Like, yeah, amazing. And we're lucky that we've got someone like him here in Alice Springs, but he's incredible. So, yeah, it's, it's just interesting about what this place used to look like. You know, we're here now. There's no ocean here as such. You know, the ocean's either 1500 k's that way or 1500 k's that way mm. and you're right the the kids from out bush they might have never seen the ocean um they might have only ever seen it you know on tv or something like that they might have actually never seen it and they come here and every kid knows what a crocodile is without mm. doubt and the kids just love the crocodile absolutely love him and that's one reason why we got him here because people say why are you dragging crocodile into the desert but if you think about it a lot of people if they're coming up to the top end, they'll travel up through this way. So they come from either New South Wales, from Victoria, from South Australia. They travel here before they go up north because if they're coming here a lot of the time, they're going up north as well because they're the. if you're visiting us, it's the same time of year that you want to be up north. It's dry season. So, you know, we can educate people on... Because crocodiles are dangerous. There's no doubt about it. They, they're very dangerous and they do want to kill you. And with little kids, they'll definitely want to eat little kids. But with adults, they're just happy to kill you. But we show people how dangerous crocodiles really are and we get over the fact that you've got to respect that animal and you're going to be in its environment, you know, in a thousand k's time or so. So uh, you've got to respect that environment up there because these things here, they, they're king up there. But the, when the kids come in here, um, they just love Terry, you know. They love to see him in the pond and love to see him have a swim or if he's up basking with his mouth open and his teeth there, they, they just love it. And as I said, these kids are... Would, would, might not they probably some of them or a lot of them have never seen the ocean you know maybe they might but maybe some will never see the ocean but they can come here and see a crocodile and these kids they get big smiles when they see that crocodile and 
that's great for us. We, we love that sort of thing. So, you know, it's great to have kids grow up to love nature and be immersed in nature. And I think if humans ever tried to live without nature, it would be a very sad existence. You know, and as I said, naturing to me includes that sky above you. You know, if you can't see that sky, I think that's pretty sad because that sky, I think, is ingrained into us as, a, as humans. You know, I think you need the sky as much as you need green trees. Mm-hmm. Well said, mate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Facilities like this are so important to connect people with nature, educate people about the dangers of nature. Yeah, we do talk about the dangers of nature, but, I mean, as you definitely well know, in Australia, I mean, hardly anyone ever gets killed by a snake, as mm. in a snake bite. Uh, there might be a couple of people a year, maybe a couple of people a year taken by a crocodile. And how many people a year die from diseases that we've helped manufacture, you know, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, all those sort of things. And we were talking that today in reptiles. You know, we're doing that with humans as well. You know, we've got obese humans and all that sort of thing, you know, because we're not providing a sustaining environment. And with our creatures, you know, they've got to be as though they're a wild creature. They should be like they are in the wild. And we can help with that. And the animals should look lean and healthy. And one comment we do get in here, or we get two comments usually, one is that the animals look great which hopefully they are. And secondly is that everything's clean because I like keeping it. And that was what I was told, you keep everything clean. I have a guest book out there and I've got probably, I reckon I'd have maybe close to 100 guest books. So I've got my first guest book from when I first opened up. I've always had a guest book because I can go away on holiday or go away somewhere and I can be away for five days or I can go filming, be away for two weeks, come back. And the first thing I do is I read all those things. So, you know, people put on social media, but, you know, they also write in that guest book and I read that guest book. And I know exactly how my place is gone because I'll read that guest book. Mate, that's amazing. I mean, I'm a small business owner, not to this capacity, but you work tirelessly, but you're just so smart when it comes to business. And this place would not exist without your hard work. And this must consume your thoughts. It, it does. Thank you for that. But um, I had to learn a lot of that as well. So because I work in two spheres, which is the reptile side and the tourism side. And I knew a little bit about reptiles and you can never ever know everything (laughs) and that's why we go to these conferences you know there's always learning to be had and if we can learn something new and bring it back to us and then also I can pass it on to my staff who work with me and my keepers and I'm lucky I've got a fantastic group of people working here at the moment it's all about learning and constantly learning so there's always room to learn especially with these days with our science and the sciences now really really good so we can delve down into things at a different level so we need to be able to be constantly on that when i first came here i had to do everything so i had to do the marketing because if i didn't market properly i'd have no one come to my door so it would have closed so um i had to suddenly learn everything so i had to learn about marketing i had to learn about employing people i had to learn to be a boss never been a boss <laughs> so i had to learn to be a boss and i had to um i had to learn to finances all sorts of things I had to learn and now regulations and rules and everything you've got to learn about so much it's it's just crazy so i've been lucky that northern territory has had a fairly good system in place we've got access to things like beck which is the business um enterprise center which actually goes right across australia so i i say anyone who's got a small business doesn't matter what it is go to your nearest beck because they can point you in the right direction for a lot of things especially with grant funding and things like that they are really a good service so we've used beck a lot we've used department of business up here which run all sorts of programs for for not just tourism people but people in businesses so we've done a hell of a lot of their programs we did a business 
business plan through them. So all sorts of things we've done through. Then we had the Soul Cities, and I've written several major applications for funding. I could either go for a tourism award and get a little thing that sits up there maybe and says, you know, you've won a tourism award, or I can apply for funding, which takes the same amount of time, and I might get $100,000 in funding. So that's what I did. Because <laughs> I went for the tourism award a couple of times and missed out by like half a point each time. So I got sick of that really quickly. So I concentrated on writing grant fundings. And my first grant funding, which was for Crocodile, I missed out. And so I talked to them and I said, you know, why did I miss out on the funding? And they said, well, you actually put in for two things. It was, it was a crocodile and something. I was coming in what it was back then. They said it was almost like you were after two things, not one. And these people that do the funding, you've got to think like, they've got to go through hundreds of applications and they've got these guidelines that they've got to tick off. So if your thing doesn't meet the exact guideline, they're just going to flip it out straight away. So I learnt from that. So it's an easy no. Yep, so I learnt from that straight away. It was an easy no, so it went on that pile and not that pile. So I missed out on that one, but I got it the next year. (laughs) It's to ask. Yep, and I've now got several lots of grants. So we got grant funding to help uh, build the what is now the gecko cave it was actually a fossil cave it's now a gecko cave um, that was a federal government grant the crocodile pond was under a federal government grant uh, the new reception it was under a state government grant NT government grant uh, a lot of the works in here all the new uh, yeah, as you can see we've got new signage going up right at the moment so all of our what we call old signage static signage is about to go so there'll be static boards outside uh, but there'll be new composite boards and they're very colourful very very nice and they're being done by Brad at the moment and Mike mm-hmm. yeah Fauna Management Services so they're doing all that work at the moment they work with a lot of zoos great people to work with and extremely professional and if you work with professional people you're just going to get a professional product simple as that so we engage them to do it we we did a lot of things here so all these photo frames we bought through the local harvey norman that because you had to show that you were using as much nt stuff as possible but you know when it comes to the software behind it really these guys were the best so we went with them instead but the government was happy to do that because you know we've still done a lot of stuff in Alice springs as much as we possibly could. So we got about $25,000 worth of grant funding under the latest what's called VEEP, which is to help business, especially tourism businesses, raise their status and profile uh, in the eyes of the of the visiting tourist. So, you know, we've, we've got, we had outdated signage. You can see the outdated signage, although there's other places, especially big places, still have signage like that because I look at signage everywhere I go. <laughs> I don't look at the animals everywhere I go to someone's place. I'll look at the animals quickly, but I'm looking at the signage and how they do things. And, <laughs> and that's what you do when you own a park because if you can steal someone's idea and make it better, <laughs> then you do it. So, you know, all the photo frames that are going up, all the iPad stations, um, so the photo frames all have rolling photos, uh, little snippets of footage, uh, and then all the data, animal data will be on those in English. And then the iPad stations will have the heavy-duty data as well as all in, in foreign languages. You've got to cater for everyone these days. We're forever trying to, to do things this place. You can't rest on your laurels. And the, the person who comes in here may only ever come in once. They may only ever visit once. But if you're constantly doing things, it means that you know in yourself that you're doing as much as you can to keep your place where it should be, which is at the forefront and not lagging behind. So we're forever doing things because it probably gives me a peace of mind that at least I'm doing something. For me as an owner, compared to a keeper, I'm a keeper and an owner. Um, So I've got a lot more responsibility and my big responsibility is to my co-workers and to the visiting public 
and the animals. So I've got three lots of live things that I've got to be responsible for. So it's a lot. And unfortunately, when you're a director of something, you're the one who cops it. You know, you're the final domino. Well, I think everyone that we saw here Sunday looked pretty happy. So I think you're doing all right. Animals and people. It's um, something that I think if you're really passionate about your business, you're always looking to what you want to do next. It's something you have to do. If you, if you lose it, I think you'll just lose it and that's it. If you're passionate and you come back, and I'm lucky because, you know, reptiles was my passion. So I've been able to live and work my passion, which most people go to work and then they have that as a hobby. And there's not many people that can probably be able to say they've done it. No, mate, no you're very lucky. And guys, if obviously get up to Central Australia. If you can't, or if you're coming through on the way up north or heading down south, you've got to come in into the Alice Springs Reptile Centre. Really good. And I guarantee if we came back in a year or two, it would be completely different. Beautiful setting. Yeah, we do three shows a day for the general public. So they can come in and the show's 11, 1, 3.30 every day. So we do the three shows a day. And we've always got the keepers wandering around everywhere. And people just like to sit and have a chat sometimes. And because we're a small place, we can do that. That's one of the things about big parks compared to small ones. With a big one, they can still do a, a keeper talk, but then they've got to go and away they've got a million jobs to do whereas with a small place we can spend more time interacting with people and i think that's what gets us over the line is that you know very close personal interaction so we're, we're sort of lucky like that but that i've kept it that way another yeah, great reason great. to come yeah uh, <laughs> shows. um rex thank you so much thank for your time you. mate we, you know, we, we, it's been a crazy few days we've been at a the large varanid conference yeah. So we've all been listening and learning and uh, you, you've been doing presentations and, mate, we really appreciate you giving us your time tonight. No, well, thank you for inviting me and it's been a pleasure and uh, it's great to um, also have two people sitting down with you that equally share the passion and I think that's different, you know, because normally if we do a radio interview, you know, they're employed by whoever they're employed by but they're just a, they're a radio jock. You know, I mean, they still love their job. But it's different when, you, when you're interviewed by someone who's got the same passion as you because you can tease things out a bit more. So it's been that's, very enjoyable. That's why we love doing this because we're, we're, we are passionate about what we do and all we get to do is interview people that are passionate about what they're doing. And we have no idea how to interview, but we just, yeah, love, yeah, we we just, just love listening to you guys, don't awesome. we? No, it, it works. It, <laughs> it comes guy, across really... The guys that get this show out there, I think it's brilliant. Yeah. Thanks yeah. so much. Oh, thank you very much for having us. And guys, thank you for listening.